Hello everybody and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Have you ever heard of the Colorado-Kansas Railroad? If so, you're already one step ahead. But if you're like most of us, this is probably your first encounter with this relatively short-lived branch line connecting Colorado and Kansas. Typically on this podcast, we focus on the broad interactions between the railroad and national politics, culture, and society. In this episode, however, we take a break from that mold and we hold a microscope up to see how a local railroad can impact the cities along its lines. For this episode, we interview Jay Bradford Bowers, whose recent book, Bound by Steel and Stone, serves as the basis for this discussion. If you like what you hear, you can find the link to that book in the description. So without further ado, let's get into the show. All right, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, for coming on to uh, to discuss your recent book that came out in 2021 called Bound by Steel and Stone, which covers the saga of the Colorado-Kansas Railroad. Um, just to get started, let's talk about the time period we're discussing today, which would be um, the very late 1800s is sort of where you start the book, uh, but most of it, it's, it's the Colorado-Kansas uh, Railroad, doesn't get started until uh, the very early 1900s. So, so what's going on during this time period that's important for this story? Well, the, the closing of the frontier, um, we tend to think of it in terms of uh, Frederick Jackson Turner's famous thesis that uh, he came out with in 1893. Um, but it goes back to the U.S. Census in 1890, stating that um, for their purposes, they were no longer going to publish a frontier line uh, for uh, the U.S. Census. And all that meant was uh, the frontier line was the 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 difference between uh, two or more people per square mile or fewer than two people per square mile living. And it was something they had kept track of since the 1790 census. So when they issued that bulletin in, in 1890 saying, you know, we're no longer going to, uh, uh, you know, keep track of this, uh, that brought us this idea that the frontier was closed. And, and so I think in popular imagination, it's the idea that, okay, the West is fully settled and uh, the, you know, the era of the wild West is over. And, you know, we can look at it in, in that sense. Uh, for instance, all of the, the relocation of the indigenous peoples had been completed by 1890. So, um, in, in in that sense, then it is uh, uh, closed. But you know, still, even in the the American West, most people lived in in communities or cities, and the rural areas were uh, vastly underpopulated. This idea, though, that the the West was closed, um, it's not exactly accurate uh, because there's going to continue to be more and more people moving into the American West uh, from the 1880s, the 1890s onward. And, and much of that is actually coming from immigration into the United States, whether it's coming from uh, Europe or it's coming from Asia. And um, we're going to see a lot of those people relocate to the American West because of all of the uh, industries that are developing out there. 
with my book, I, I subtitled it The Frontier of Enterprise. And, and in many ways, it was a, a wild west of economic development from 1890 onward, because now that we have the uh, technological and uh, scientific capabilities to overcome the limitations of the American West's landscape, now we can fully develop the resources that are there. And this really isn't possible till after the Civil War. We we get into the era that uh, some historians refer to as the Second Industrial Revolution. And the technologies that are developed during that time, the scientific advancements, the development of corporate capitalism, all of those are required to develop the resources of the American West. You're, you're not going to get development in the American West until you have all of those things in place. That's why, you know, from 1803 onwards, there aren't a lot of people moving into the West. And so in, in the 1880s, 1890s, and into the early 20th century, then, sure, this idea that the frontier is closed is, is out there. But for people that want to take advantage of the landscape and all of the natural resources of the West, um, no, it's it's still a wide open frontier. And you get all kinds of crazy schemes that uh, will be developed to try and uh, you know, profit off of uh, the extraction of those resources. Um, so how does the Colorado-Kansas Railroad um, sort of fit into all this? Well, the Colorado-Kansas Railroad is, uh, it, during the, the time of its existence, uh, a, a short-line railroad. It is not part of a larger railroad, uh, like a branch line, to you know, go to some of these um, extractive resources, but it, it's a short line instead. With the development of the American West, when we think about railroads, we often think of the Transcontinental Railroad. That's the one I think that that comes to mind. Um, you know, ever since uh, the conclusion of the Mexican-American War in 1848, there was this desire to you know push the railroads from the east all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, that's where the transcontinental comes in. By the time we get to the 1890s, we actually have multiple transcontinental railroads. So east and west are connected. What happens uh, after that is all about filling in the gaps or the holes in the railroad network out west. And that's where both branch lines come in. Uh, and and short lines. So branch lines would be built by the uh, the large railroads, the national railroads that uh, you know try to connect to uh, say mining camps or timber country or agricultural resources, and and they can add that revenue then to their uh, coffers. But short lines come in when there's no interest in the branch lines uh, building into those areas and uh, the railroads uh, are usually started by local people who say, well, we still want to be, uh, you know, have these resources connected to our community and to our region. And so, you know, they will uh, often undertake the, the construction of those short lines and the Colorado, Kansas, uh, crazily enough, uh, started out as a project 
that was you know about as grandiose as these uh, types of projects get the railroad in its conception in, in 1908 was to be an electrified railway so when we think of electrified railways you know think of uh, what amtrak runs in the northeast corridor today or um you know light rail in uh, communities around the country those are all electric powered in the late 19th early 20th century electricity seemed to be uh, the direction that railroads were eventually going to go and th there was this explosion of construction of uh, what we call electric interurban railroads that will connect communities and um, you know they they won't do as much business as the the larger class one railroads, but they will connect a lot of these communities, and in many cases they will do it fairly efficiently. By the time we get to 1908, though, they've kind of reached their peak of construction, and they're they're on their way out. But many people still envision these electrified railways. The railroad aspect of this was actually a. a a side project of an irrigation and electrification project for the lower Arkansas River Valley. So we're talking about where the Arkansas River runs in uh, eastern Colorado and western Kansas. Along the river itself, uh, you have a lot of agricultural development very early on because there's access to water from the river. But the further away from the river you get, and especially the further eastward you get, uh, there's less water available. In western Kansas, there was not as much agricultural development as there could be because of lack of irrigation water. Uh, you know, there's a, a massive aquifer under there, but trying to pump up the water uh, without electricity is uh, something that they just can't overcome. And in terms of electrification of the Lower Arkansas River Valley, there's not a lot of incentive for utility companies to come in and, uh, you know, and electrify that. So you might have uh, communities like Garden City have local power stations and power systems to electrify their community, but farther away from that, the, the farmers aren't going to be able to have that electricity. With the Kansas, Colorado uh, power and irrigation project, the idea was let's electrify the lower Arkansas Valley. We can provide electricity to farmers and other customers along the river. And that way they have electricity to pump groundwater up and irrigate crops and it's gonna benefit them as well. They also recognized that they need to power their power plants with coal, which they would have access to from Canyon City, Colorado, and uh, the whole southeastern Colorado region. But they also had to figure out how do we get it from uh, Colorado all the way down to western Kansas? Well, why don't we just build our own railroad and we can use the coal to power our own power plants and uh, we'll make it an electrified railroad and that way it can power our uh, trains as well. And then we can sell the electricity to uh, farmers. And the whole scheme was uh, come up with by uh, a developer from the uh, Northern Manufacturing Company in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So it was all, uh, you know, a way to sell electricity 
rather than just a railroad. The railroad itself over the next four years from 1908 to 1912 um, has a very rocky start. They have trouble getting enough capital, selling stock to uh, raise the funds they need to build the railroad. And by 1911, they've only built a mile and a half of track uh, in, in Pueblo, Colorado. The railroad, which would have run from Canyon City all the way to Garden City with a branch line north to Scott City, uh, would have been over 350 miles long, and it would have been one of the longest electrified lines in the United States. But they have to pare back their plans, and thus this massive electrification project comes down to a 22-mile short line that connects Pueblo to Stone City, and that's all it would ever be uh, for the next, you know, almost five decades. Yeah, and that that seems to be like a a fairly common thing that we've seen in this program is like people start with these really grandiose claims. Like our our last podcast, we've looked at a bunch of different like uh, local branch lines. And some of them were talking about like, oh, you know, we'll build this branch line and then it'll connect to this major railroad network. And then we'll try to push forward and get uh, from the United States all the way to Moscow and like go over the Bering Strait and all these other sort of like really ambitious plans. And then the actual reality of construction um, ends up sort of curtailing a lot of that. And if you think about like 1911, we're only about 35 years from the the max amount of, of railroad miles in the United States um, yes. being reached. So, you know, in these folks mind, because um, it's, it's 1911 and they don't necessarily foresee the changes that are coming. Um, they're still looking at the railroad as like the thing that's going to the, the modern thing that'll connect our cities and all these um, futuristic gadgets and things like that. But, but they just don't know yet. They're, they're already towards the end of of this project Um, right yeah well that era is amazing the late 19th early 20th century um in terms of the ideas that people came up with for you know any kind of of business not just railroads but they dreamed big and you know those dreams did run up against reality uh most of the time in in some cases, you know, these uh, schemers and dreamers, as I call them in the book, um, you know, are they con men? Yeah, I think to a certain extent. But, you know, I think most businessmen in, in the Gilded Age and into the early 20th century, just they all had a bit of that about them. I think it was just what, uh, you know, helped them to operate at the level that they did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of the impossible, seemingly impossible things you know, ended up happening, whether that be the Transcontinental Railroad, which today we think of like, oh, well, of course that was possible because it because it happened, you know, but, right. but I'm sure for if you were living that during that time, you know, that is seemingly just as ambitious as as uh, three over 350 miles of electrified track. Um, and it's just some of these things worked out and some of them, um, maybe not so much. Um, but that 22 miles that did eventually exist, what was its primary purpose? Its primary purpose was to uh, connect Stone City, where there were operating stone quarries uh, for for building stone, for construction of buildings, and clay mines, which provided clay for fire bricks, which are used 
in uh, in boilers and furnaces, they can you know take a high amount of heat without uh, cracking and, and breaking. And and to bring those resources to Pueblo, um, that was only one aspect of uh, of the business that the railroad was going to you know conduct uh, in the early years of its construction, but it ends up being uh, pretty much their only business until we get um, to the last couple of decades. And then they have some local switching opportunities around Pueblo, but uh, primarily it was just to bring those, uh, the clay and stone resources into Pueblo and then, you know, take them wherever in the, the nation they needed to go. Um, and was this like, was this financially viable? Did they end up making money off of the line? Most of the time, uh, you know, looking at their tax records, they ran in the red. You know, they they ran a deficit. Uh, the early years, they they did pretty well. Um, you know, f- when they officially opened for business in the spring of 1912, uh, the stone quarries were going full tilt. There were a, a lot of buildings under construction in uh, Colorado and uh, surrounding states that wanted to use that stone. So, you know, they have uh, as many as 100 men working in the quarries at any any given time in those first few years. By the time we get to 1920, though, a lot of the construction practices in this country had shifted away from stone. You know, we're we're using far more steel and and concrete than we ever had before. And stone falls out of favor. And and part of it, I'm sure, had to deal with the, the cost uh, especially the labor costs of, uh, you know, removing that stone and then and the expertise of the masons to craft that stone. But after that, um, the railroad starts running into difficulties. And, uh, you know, pretty much by the time we get to the Great Depression, they are no longer selling any stone and they're relying in, entirely on the um, uh, transport of the fire clay from their clay mines at Stone City. When do they, uh, and I guess a clarifying question, they, they no longer exist, correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, they were abandoned in 1957. Gotcha. Um, and was that just sort of the same general trend here? They're, the things are designed to move, get less and less profitable, eventually get abandoned, and there's just no, there's no money to keep them in service. Yeah, you know, that was typical of most short lines in 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 the early 20th century. And well, even as typical today, if you don't have the the revenue coming in, there's no reason to stay in business. Um, a lot of the fire clay, you know, by the time we get to the 1940s and 50s, a lot of the fire clay was being moved by trucks anyway. So, uh, you know, there wasn't as much for the railroad to do. And in fact, in in the 1950s, they're only running three trains a week to Stone City. Most of their business was coming from uh, switching opportunities uh, in the Pueblo uh, community. Um, And is there any sort of remnants of the railroad left? Did they end up selling? I know sometimes they sell their equipment to larger um, railroad networks or anything like that. None of their uh, rolling stock is left. By the time uh, they abandoned, they only had one locomotive. It was a, a gas electric locomotive that they had bought secondhand from a, a farmer's co-op in Illinois. It was originally an uh, electric interurban uh, a box motor. So it was designed to carry 
cargo, basically an electrified box car, and that they converted to run on uh, gasoline engines that powered the generators that uh, that drove the locomotive, similar to the diesel electrics that uh, railroads use today. That locomotive, um, the railroad could not sell off. They tried to find buyers for it. Um, they even uh, checked with uh, Ralph Richardson of the, the Colorado Railroad Museum to see if he wanted it. And he ultimately decided they were asking too much money for it. So it got scrapped. All of their rolling stock was scrapped. But surprisingly, there are pieces of the railroad still left. The uh, cinder block engine house that they built in 1943 for that locomotive is still in existence. And it's there on the west side of Pueblo. If you know where to look, it's, uh, you know, it's used for storage. The depot at Stone City was uh, bought by a local rancher when they abandoned in 1957. He used it for storage for things like hay. And eventually he sold it and it was moved to the town of Penrose, which is uh, west of Pueblo. And it's still sitting there today. Over the years, it's been a, a number of different businesses. And I think right now it's a residence. At least that's what it looks like. But, uh, you know, this this tiny little depot that they built uh, is, is still in existence as well. So it's uh, it's remarkable that that anything exists from this railroad. Do the, uh, either the restaurants that were in the depot or is there like there any signage up? That like tells people that this used to be a depot of a of the railroad, or um, do you think that's just something that's sort of like like maybe a local historian knows it, but it hasn't really made it out to the public? It's the latter. Um, there are no signage. There's no signage uh, stating that you know this was once a, a railroad depot, and it it doesn't exactly look like a railroad depot anyway. They've uh, you know, it's had a few modifications over the years, but it uh, uh, I think it just it's small enough. It doesn't stand out. And and so people probably in Penrose don't know that it was a depot. And if they do know it was a depot, they might think it was the Penrose depot and, and not know where it came from. Um, OK, so another thing that we've found in other railroad uh, branch lines um is that like there's a really strong connection between the cities that they run between um, or the places they run between and um, the railroad itself. So like the people that work on the railroad are generally from these communities, the people that um, own them and operate them have some deep connections um, to those, those places. Is that the case here as well? Um, yes and no, actually. The original investors that uh, were the ones to successfully get the short line going by 1912 came from both um, Pueblo and, and the Colorado area, as well as Kansas. And the majority of the investors actually came from Kansas. It makes sense because it was going to connect those two states. And it makes sense that it, you know investors in both uh, would want to have them connected. There was even a, a congressman in Kansas that was one of the investors in this. Um, once it became apparent that it was uh, going to remain a short line, the um, investors uh, didn't pursue, you know, anything beyond uh, that uh, 22.5 miles of track. Uh, but they maintained their investments up until um, uh, 
the Great Depression. You know, most of them kept their their stock investments. So the ones that are managing the railroad uh, came from the Pueblo area. Uh, of course, the workers did. The uh, city of Stone City was, you know, ostensibly a company town. The uh, the town itself was owned by uh, the quarry company, which uh, one of the investors in the quarry company was uh, also an investor in the railroad. And uh, they're actually the key reason that the railroad ever got built in the first place, uh, which I can go into. But the uh, the company town uh, rented out, uh, you know, homes to uh, workers at the quarries and the clay mines, or they sold homes. Now, a lot of uh, the coal mining company towns, for instance, of CFNI in, in southern Colorado, um, you know, they they didn't sell property to their workers. They strictly rented. But here they would sell property. If you want to buy a lot in town and build a home, you know, you're welcome to it. And the company then had to manage the community all the way up until the very end in uh, 1964, uh, when the army came in and uh, uh, took over the the property to expand Fort Carson. So th there was always close connections between Stone City and Pueblo. But how did the Colorado and Kansas Railroad navigate the changing political scene um, during the um, early 1900s progressivist uh, era? Well, the railroad itself got uh, mixed up in progressive era reform um, by accident. I mean, it, it wasn't part of their plan. They weren't uh, coming in trying to reform anything. They were just trying to build this system and make money off of it. Uh, but during the progressive era, one of the, the reforms that was prominent across the United States uh, involved the uh, governance of of cities of towns of communities where you know throughout the 19th century uh, the political machines led by the political boss uh, were the ones that ran the communities and they were the ones who uh, ensured that the politicians they wanted to be elected were elected and then they got to make money off of uh, you know things like kickbacks bribes uh graft by um, owning the uh the contracting companies that are helping to build these cities and they get awarded the contracts and uh, you know so it was all about making money more so than it was governing and the Colorado Kansas Railway ends up running against uh, the running up against the political boss in Pueblo. Uh, the political boss John F. Vale in in Pueblo also managed the um, the the lighting and traction company in town. So they provided electricity to the uh, city of Pueblo, as well as uh, provided the uh, streetcar service, the electrified streetcar service. When this railroad came into Pueblo, it was, you know, going to be an electrified railroad, and it was going to run through the city. And the railroad needed a charter from the city government to be able to build through the city. Well, where Vale had a problem with this is, uh, you know, quite obvious if the railroad itself is also in the electricity generating business and selling that electricity, 
and it's running a electrified railroad through the city of Pueblo, it's going to be direct competition for him. So he started throwing up roadblocks, including uh, getting the uh, the Pueblo Board of Aldermen, their their city council, to you know deny the railroad a charter to build through the city. They were allowed to build from a point in the city and start building westward, but they weren't allowed to build anywhere else. And and much of the one and a half miles of track that they built during that time uh, ran through unincorporated uh, land. So the progressive reformers in in Pueblo, uh, backed by the the progressive newspapers of the day, uh, were really pushing for the success of the Colorado-Kansas Railway because they saw it as a way to break up the power and the monopoly of uh, the political machine in Pueblo. The railroad fought a legal battle in uh, the court system, and while they lost initially, um, they continued to pursue the case and they ended up having uh, Judge Ed Reiser of the 10th, the 10th Judicial District Court uh, eventually rule in their favor. And they were then granted the ability to keep building the railroad. Now, Judge Reiser's nephew ends up being the, the chief engineer for the railroad shortly after that. So the question arises well, you know, what uh, was there some quid pro quo here? Um, interestingly enough, uh, the records of all of those court cases, I to this point in time, I have not found the uh, 10th Judicial District Court cannot seem to find those records. So, I, you know, I don't know anything more than what was reported in the newspapers, unfortunately. But, um, you know, they do see a victory there. And in terms of progressive reform in Pueblo, uh, the voters of Pueblo were asked in September of 1911 to vote for a new city government that would do away with the Board of Aldermen and a mayor and instead go with a city council form of government. And because of the Colorado, Kansas case, as well as another case involving uh, a north side um, uh, water treatment plant that was um, uh, part of the, the political machine, the uh, voters in Pueblo decided they had had enough and uh, voted for a new form of government uh, like many communities across the United States had done. So, you know, we do see a dramatic change in, in, in terms of uh, progressive area reform in Pueblo, in part because of the railroad who, you know, you know, the poor guys just wanted to build this railroad and uh, were blocked by it. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting case where, you know, we were talking about um, their grandiose plans originally, um, and they ended up not having nearly as as large of a rail run as they wanted um, and ended up not having sort of, um, I think, of um, like a widespread impact. Um, but for the communities that it was in, it, it had a deep impact, it sounds like, where they literally changed the way that this city um, was operated in part because of their legal battles, even if that wasn't like their intention. Um, I think it's interesting to kind of think of that like like um, uh, the state level uh, influence versus just like the very, very strong local 
levels of interest. Right, right. And uh, with the railroad, you know, not building more than 22 miles of track and not being electric, it ended up not being a competitor for uh, for Vale and his political machine. So in a way, you know, Vale's opposition kind of brought about his own demise, uh, you know, with the, the Pueblo voters getting fed up with it. Yeah. Just kind of an interesting aside. The uh, a few years ago, uh, Pueblo uh, opted to voters opted to move away from the city manager form of government, which we had adopted in 1949 uh, with a hired city manager move away from that back to a strong mayor. And so we've had a strong mayor now for a couple of years, and there's a movement uh, in, in some political circles in Pueblo to go back to the city management form of government. So it's in, in a way, it's kind of this repeat of, uh, of history where you know history is rhyming, uh, as the saying goes. Um, but, uh, you know, there's... Uh, not the uh, the pressure that you see during the the progressive era, for sure. For sure. Um, well, what got you interested in this topic? Are you, are you local to the area? I grew up in the Denver area in Lakewood, but I moved to Pueblo uh, uh, in 1999 to finish up my undergraduate degree at uh, what was then the U University of Southern Colorado, and today it's Colorado State Pueblo. Colorado State University, Pueblo. And it was while I was here in, in Pueblo that I discovered this railroad. Um, I, had, uh, I had lived out of state for a while by this point. And so when I came back to Colorado, I wanted to reestablish my residency for a year so that I didn't have to pay out of state tuition. So I, you know, uh, working uh, full time, but not going to school full time, I ended up having uh, time to research uh, a lot of different things that actually all ended up coming together unexpectedly for this book. Uh, but one of them was this railroad. And I've had an interest in railroads since I was less than a year old. My, uh, I was born in Newton, Kansas, which was uh, an important uh, uh uh, station on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, and my my dad worked in an office that was next to the the depot there in Newton, Kansas. And my mom would always tell me, you know, when she would take me down during the day to see my dad at work, I always wanted to, you know, see the trains come in at the depot. And you know, I wasn't even a year old, so I've I've long had an interest in railroads, but this one piqued my interest when I had a a friend uh, tell me that uh, there was a railroad that uh, used to run across the Pueblo West area where I was living and had you know long since been abandoned. And, and that was all it took to interest me. It's like, okay, well, I want to know more about this railroad that ran uh, you know near this area that I'm living in. I was well aware of the history of the Denver and Rio Grande and Pueblo and the Santa Fe and so forth. But this one I had never heard of. And it it turns out that, uh, you know, not a lot of other people had heard of it either. There hadn't been a lot of research done on it, a lot written on it, uh, and, and certainly not for several decades. So, uh, you know, I just I started digging into the history of it. And, uh, you know, some 20 years later, I end up with a book on it. <laughs> um, and we've kind of talked about it a little bit with um 
us talking about how uh, the rolling stock ended up getting um, scrapped, that there's really only a depot left over. Um, so on one hand, the legacy, and you mentioned a lot of people don't even know that um, it existed even in Pueblo and all these other areas. Um, so on one hand, it sounds like there's not really not much of a legacy for this railroad. But then on the other hand, it influ had a deep influence on like the way the governance of the city is set up. Um, so so in your mind, what, what do you think the legacy of the, the railroad is? Well, you're right about the 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 influence it had on the, the city government that it it brought about a massive change in 1911 to a, a city council form of government, which wouldn't change again until, you know, the uh, the hiring of a city manager in 1949. But for me, I think the real legacy is. um in some ways, it's the railroad, but in some ways, it's also Stone City, uh, which I, I write about uh, quite a bit in this book. I mean, there's an entire third of the book that's devoted to Stone City. The quarries supplied stone for a lot of uh, important buildings in the state of Colorado, in Pueblo itself, and uh, elsewhere in uh, the United States. The uh, Civic Center Park in Denver, uh, at, at two opposite sides of uh, Civic Center Park, because on one end of Civic Center Park in Denver, you've got the city and county building, and then on the other end, you've got the, de the, uh, the state capitol building. And then, you know, picture kind of a T-shape. And then on the other two sides, uh, uh, the north and south sides, uh, you've got uh, the Voorhees Memorial and then on the other side, you've got uh, a Greek amphitheater. Both the Voorhees Memorial and the Greek amphitheater are built out of Stone City stone. And uh, I mean, they're beautiful uh, structures and they are you know, very emblematic of the, the city beautiful movement during uh, you know, the, the late 19th and early 20th century. But they're still standing today and they're still used today and they're still admired today. And while, you know, nobody that visits them knows where the stone came from, I think they can still appreciate the stone. Uh, the courthouse in Pueblo is probably the most famous building here that is built out of uh, the, the stone from Stone City. Uh, City Hall also incorporates stone from so Stone City. And uh, there's a post office in Ottawa, Kansas, um, the Union Depot in Wichita, uh, courthouse in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Lots of different buildings use this stone. And so I think really that is is more of uh, the important legacy, you know, the resources that were brought out by this railroad. They're still with us today and still used and admired. All right. Well, that's all the questions that I got. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. We spend so much of our time sort of like looking at the big scale pictures of all the railroads in the West and how they impacted or all the railroads over here and how they impacted these different areas. Uh, but sometimes it's just so nice to just kind of uh, bunker down and learn about one specific case study and see, you know, again, like we talked about, they didn't have the the widest influence um, in the world, but they they had these deep connections to these places. Um, great. Well, we'll go ahead and throw the uh, the link to the book in the description of this podcast if people are interested in learning more. Um, is there anything else that you're working on that we should plug as well? I've got a lot of different irons in the fire, as they say. Um, different research interests uh, here in the Pueblo area. 
Uh, I've been talking for a while with the um, Steelworks Center of the West, which houses the Colorado Fuel and Iron Steel Mill Archives, uh, about doing a book on their Colorado and Wyoming Railroad, which served uh, both their coal mines and actually still operates today within the steel mill property itself. Um, so that's that's kind of in the in the back of my mind. I've got some articles I'm working on, and then. Uh, strangely enough, uh, one of my other uh, research interests is on the men's hatting industry. <laughs> Nothing to do with railroads and uh, a, in, in particular, a company that operated out of uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's actually where my next book is going to be because I've been researching that as long as I have the railroads and uh, it, it's ready to be written. Awesome. Um, great. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk. As we conclude this episode, we bid farewell to the captivating saga of the Colorado and Kansas Railroad. From its ambitious beginnings to the challenges of maintaining a railroad in the face of technological progress, we've journeyed through a forgotten chapter of local history that seems reflective of many branch lines throughout the United States. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.